Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The expression false pretense is very strange. By definition, a pretense is the act of giving an appearance. In the Bible, anything that presents an appearance is already a lie, the depth and breadth of which is evident without the use of a modifier. In Matthew, the pretense of humility amplifies human arrogance even as the appearance of charity facilitates selfishness. Are you humble because you look humble? Are you generous because people saw you giving alms to the poor? Since all pretense is false, it's hard to say. But Matthew, like the Apostle Paul, won't enter the debate since even humility and generosity, no matter how sincere, are rendered unrighteous by the credit your pretense earns in the sight of men. But to me it is a very small thing, St. Paul writes, that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. For Matthew, whose teaching reflects the wisdom of Paul, the only surefire way to avoid fueling our innate hypocrisy is to avoid appearances altogether, doing everything in secret until the Lord appears on the Day of Judgment. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 252 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This week on Tuesday, Richard, Father Paul gave the example of how someone can't stand on the Amvon from which the preacher gives the lecture after the gospel, the sermon. He explained how someone who stands on that step to preach humility is doing so from a position of power. And in that scenario, when you try to feign humility, it functions as arrogance in the sight of God, even though in the eyes of men it looks like humility. And that keys in very nicely with what's happening here at the beginning of chapter 6. In chapter 6, it's all about the glory of men, the glory of people. If your action elicits the glory of other people, then you've succumbed to 
the ego and you have pushed God to the side. Now, people can say, well, I didn't mean for people to notice. I just did what I thought was right, and I got glory of human beings. I'm off the hook. All that is fine until you say, I'm off the hook, because your intentions don't matter. Your actions put you on or take you off the hook. The themes that Matthew hammered away at, the first four chapters of the book, were kingship and the coming of the kingdom. In this kingdom, you must display an unwavering loyalty beyond any kind of loyalty that any human kingdom would impose. You may not even show lip service to another power. You may only show your allegiance to the one and only king of whom Jesus is the representative. And he speaks on behalf of this king as he elucidates the law of the land, the law of the kingdom. And one of these things is that you may not get glory from human beings. If being humble, you get the glory of human beings, you must act arrogantly because one opinion matters. It's completely functional. Being arrogant or being humble, righteousness only comes from not seeing their righteousness. This week in Ephesus School, Bethany explained in her lecture on Matthew chapter 8 that authority in Greek is the power to act. Jesus now replaces David in the same way that Father Paul explained Paul, the new Saul, replaces the old Saul. But that progression is from strength to weakness, not from weakness to strength. So Jesus, the shepherd king in Matthew, now sits upon the throne of David on the heavenly Zion. That's the setting for the Sermon on the Mount. And he speaks with authority, but it is an authority that we must hear as the power to take action. It has real power, material power. It has force. It is spoken with authority in humility in order to produce a result for the sake of the king's decree. But it's not the decree of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to keep coming back to this basic principle of the Roman household that is established as a church in St. Paul's letters. That there's definite authority, there's definite kingship, there's a definite mandate to take action based on the decree. That's the authority. But it doesn't belong to anyone in the household. And understanding this point is the key to understanding the true humility that the Lord is preaching in chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Look, Father, you and I have talked about this. Nobody takes the Sermon on the Mount seriously. It's frustrating to me now when I listen to so-called Christians who surround their house and their life and their Facebook wall with Bible verses and their dedication to baby Jesus and all this kind of nonsense because they don't take serious these things. Why are you surrounding yourself with Bible verses on your Facebook wall? They're not there for you to see. Nobody looks at their Facebook wall. They're there for other people to see. So you put the Bible verses on your Facebook wall to be seen before men. You have now lost your reward. Better for you that you don't put the Bible verses on your wall, but read your Bible in secret and go and do it. Don't go and put it on your Facebook wall so that other people can see how holy you are, for heaven's sake. You have to stop. You have to cut it out. Even leaders of churches do this. 
and instruct their flocks to do so. Any church leader who instructs their flock to go and do this goes against Matthew. Now, is Matthew easy to follow? By no means. It goes against every instinct we have on what it means to be a good person. People say, oh, Christianity is more than just being a good person. It's the opposite of being a good person. I mean, if you read it, anything that someone might say you did because you're a good person, you have to stop, which is the hardest possible reading you could ever have. You may not take into account the opinion of those who surround you. This goes against every political bone in our body, every nice guy bone in our body. We're not allowed. The problem, once again, is our philosophical belief, our ethical belief that there are good behaviors and bad behaviors, and there are good things and there are bad things. Nothing is essentially good or essentially evil. Everything boils down to how a thing is used. When you put a verse of scripture on your Facebook profile, two things are happening. Number one, you're using an excerpt from Scripture to glorify yourself, which makes you a Pharisee, and which means the verse is not functioning as Scripture, which is the second point. The way you're using it, it's not functioning as Scripture. And even if you tried, because it's only a verse, you're proof texting, and it has nothing to do with the content of Scripture. Remember that functionality includes how a thing works, how it connects, the situation in which it works, and the way in which it connects to other situations, and it also includes the more commonly understood concept of context. So we're talking about everything as being functional, including behaviors. I explained this to the kids at church. You take a cross, which is a sacred symbol. If you use it to teach and to bless, it's sacred. If you use it to hit somebody over the head, it becomes a weapon, and it becomes something that is used in opposition to the gospel. It doesn't matter that it's a cross. Everything's value is determined by its function, and function is more than context. We want to identify which behaviors are good and which behaviors are bad, and which things are good and which things are bad, so that we can then easily identify people who are not good, whom we consider bad. But Matthew is taking a totally different approach. He's showing you how across the entire spectrum of our ethics, we are all unrighteous. And he is demonstrating how the Torah for God functions to show us our unrighteousness. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. I can hear Paul saying, am I trying to please men or am I trying to please God? Who is it we answer to? That's the question you raised just a moment ago, Richard. Who is it that we answer to? In Matthew, it's the king who sits on the throne on Mount Zion. People always like to split the difference. Well, ideally, we would be pleasing God and human beings. But Matthew insists that if you are pleasing human beings, you cannot be pleasing God. It folds in this theme of kings and kingship. The king, it's the human king who goes and blows horns to show how good of a king he is. Take any president of the United States, and the president will tell you all the things they did. We just got finished with an election. And what comes in your mail every five minutes? What comes up every ad on every internet site? 
you get an ad about all the righteous things that this candidate or that candidate did. And then you have to choose which one is more righteous. And once you decide which one is more righteous, then you vote for them. This is saying you as a candidate, you as a king, you as a human being are not allowed to trumpet, either literally or metaphorically, your good deeds, your righteousness, acts of mercy, elemosini, alms, even your acts of mercy, you aren't allowed to tell anybody. United States, we invented marketing, but Jesus, 2,000 years ago, knew we were going to invent marketing and undermined it immediately and said, any marketing is a sin. Anytime you talk about your virtue, it's a sin. Anytime you talk about your righteousness or about your acts of mercy, you are rebelling against God. Neoliberal social justice is incompatible with verse 2. When you are doing social justice, giving alms, or trying to take care of those who are downtrodden, in order to achieve economic gain for yourself, which requires that other people know what you're doing because you have to sell it, it's corrupt. It doesn't work. Everyone needs to sit up and think about the gospel and how it applies. You begin with the premise that it is good to take care of the poor. That's not true. You have to give to the poor as you are instructed, knowing it's never enough, never take credit for it, and never tell anyone you're doing it. Now you show me anyone who can do that and turn a profit, even if they're a nonprofit, in order to maintain the heat in their building. Here, Matthew is showing you how we are all, once again, unrighteous. We are hypocrites. So since we're hypocrites, and we can't do it without talking about it, why would you pretend to be otherwise? The pretending becomes a new form of intentional hypocrisy that undermines the whole program. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Jesus... <laughs> Just in case he left too much wiggle room in these last two verses, says, guess what? You aren't even allowed to know if you performed an act of mercy or an act of righteousness. Your left hand can't even know that your right hand did it. There is no possible way to perform an act of righteousness and be considered righteous. He just took that away from you because... You might have figured out a wiggle room of doing something nice and nobody found out about it or something. Ah, but did you know you did something righteous? All right, you lost your reward. You cannot build up a reward under this system because of any shred of humanity or any shred of ego that you have. Now, you might say, oh, I'm not an egotistical person. I'm not full of ego. Look, as soon as your right hand knows that your left hand is acting righteously, you've already given up your reward. There's no wiggle room at all if you're serious about the Bible or serious about being a believer. Let me take a page out of Father Paul's book, Richard, and just deconstruct your sentence. I am not an egotistical person. That's interesting. <laughs> Could you say that again? I am not an egotistical person. <laughs> I refer the speaker of that sentence to chapter 6, verse 1. Come on. Are we being honest with ourselves? Do we really believe that we can stand on a step that is above everyone else and preach humility? Is it possible to be a humble preacher? Not according to Matthew. So why are we playing games? Is it possible to be a humble Christian? 
not according to Matthew. So why are we playing games? The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is about the power to act. That is what authority is. And it's the power to act on the decree of the Father of Jesus. So let's stop talking about ourselves and get down to business. That's why you don't want to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. You don't want the left hand to know what the right hand is doing because the very conversation would require you to use the personal pronoun I. So already out of the gate, you're glorifying yourself when you use that pronoun in order to win the favor of men. But if you understand that you are a slave in God's household, you don't have to speak. If you understand that you're a sheep in his fold, you don't have to speak. You just listen for his voice and do what he asks you to do with purity of heart. And then he'll reward you. But the reward, as we said in a previous episode on Matthew, isn't the kind of reward you can put in your pocket. One of the problems in the book of Job is you see all these people and they're acting correctly, but they're poor and they're treated badly by God. And you have all these people who are clearly wicked, who are receiving these rewards and their children have good health and long lives, which are gifts from the Lord in spite of their wickedness. But Matthew is so nasty, the way that Jesus removes even that. If you're reading Matthew, if you see somebody who is not acting righteously, but is being rewarded by God, you might have to admit that this person is in fact righteous, but is following Jesus's command by doing none of his righteousness in public. The one who looks wicked in your eyes and receiving a reward, you can no longer say that God is unjust. You have to say that this person is truly obedient because he or she is only doing it for the sake of God and does not care about the glory of human beings. Vice versa, if you see someone who's acting righteously and is receiving no reward from God and is living a poor, difficult life, you may have to say, well, according to Matthew, that person, by acting righteously in front of human beings, already received their reward. So why would they receive further reward? Jesus takes away any ability for you to judge. So later on, Jesus will talk explicitly about judgment. But already, Jesus has taken away any criteria you might think you have on which basis you can judge another human being. It's taken away from you you do not have the power to judge. You do not have the ability to judge. You do not have the data. You do not have the evidence. And you do not have the authority to make those judgments. God alone does because he is the only king. It's interesting, Richard, the word that's translated here as reward, apodidomi, can mean, in fact, an award. It can also mean that you get paid or paid back in some way. However, there's an implication of restoration, and of the concept of a yield, a financial yield, some kind of outcome that's greater than where you started, that's akin to bearing fruit. It's going to be useful. There's a return on the investment. And here, 
I think a good way to think about this is God seeking a return on his investment in the one who's obedient. Now, when we think of that return, we think of it in terms of a human award where we get something for our efforts. But the direction, the trajectory of the Gospel of Matthew is that there's a return on this investment paid for with the blood of Jesus for the sake of the common good. The reward, in this sense, is repaid. There is a yield. There is a return on the investment. But that return isn't necessarily visible. The return can be in secret. I hinted at this in a previous discussion of Matthew when we already saw the whole movement of the Sermon on the Mount heading in this direction. When you act correctly in secret, you don't know where the fruit of your obedience to the commandment, which is the seed, you don't know where that fruit plays out for the common good. The left hand can't know what the right hand is doing. So the reward that you receive, interestingly, some manuscripts have, he will reward you, period, full stop, or he will reward you openly. I can see why a scribe may have added openly because what he is trying to convey is that when you act in secret and then you are rewarded openly, it stymies any attempt for the outsider to judge whether you're righteous or not. It may even prompt them to condemn you because you obviously did not act righteously, yet you're receiving a reward. But I prefer the original reading without openly because God is going to reward you the way he's going to reward you. You may receive no reward in this life. And since you don't know if you acted righteously or not, because your right hand can't know what your left hand did, your reward is not necessarily going to correspond with either action. And so it leaves you, as well as anyone on the outside, in the dark as to whether you're righteous or not. It's not because you get a cookie, because you get a reward, because you get a trophy. It's because you're obedient. You were called as a citizen of this kingdom to act according to the one law, the one teaching of the one king. You may only show loyalty to him and may not even accidentally show loyalty to any other power or human being. To him alone be the glory. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. heard the bible as literature thanks for listening the bible as literature is a production of the ephesus school network